Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just believe Our guest tonight grew up in Philadelphia Was an amateur boxer, nightclub singer, and a pianist He became a writer and has been voted the number one sports columnist in the nation 13 times by the Associated Press. He was a panelist on ESPN's Sports Reporters for 26 years and the author of 12 books including Tuesdays with Maury and his latest book, The Little Liar, which was just released. He's written three plays, hosts a radio talk show daily here on WJR. His name, Mitch Album. And I'm Jack Crisula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. I'm Jack Crisula. This is Anything is Possible, and we're welcoming back Mitch Album for the third time. It's an honor to have you once again, Mitch. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. All right, first question. Where did you give your, get your love for sports and writing? Well, the two aren't the same. Um, sports, I played as a kid. And to be honest with you, I was never that interested in it as any kind of profession or writing about it or anything like that. Writing, I was interested in. And uh, after music, which was my first love, didn't work out for me. I was a starving musician in New York, along with a million other starving musicians in New York. I wanted to try something that was creative, but... Um, you know, maybe had a little more structure to it than the music business where you might get rewarded more for hard work. And I'd always been a pretty decent storyteller, um, you know, verbally. I'd never really written anything. Um, so I decided to take a job for free at a local newspaper in Queens, New York, during the day while I worked as a musician at night. And that's how I began to fall in love with writing. But it was never sports. Uh, sports I just kind of fell into by accident uh, on a job board while I was at Columbia getting a master's degree. If the job board had had, I don't know, a, 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 it was for a sport magazine. If the job board had had a sewing magazine, I might have had a career as a sewing writer or something like that. Uh, how do you explain the fascination that we all have with stories and storytellers? Well, it's the oldest form of communication in the world. And you go back to the caves that they discover, you know, and what, what's on the walls of the caves, stories. So this is how we pass on our wisdom. This is how we pass on our history. This is how we pass on the truths of life and the things that we aspire to. And um, I think no matter how the industries change and no matter how the delivery systems change, and even in the course of my life, they've changed dramatically. You know, there was no cable TV when I started out. There was no cell phones. There were no instant videos. There was no Instagram. There was no, you know, streaming. But all those things have come into being, and none of them have done anything but enhance stories and storytelling. In fact, if anything, people need more stories now than they did before because there's so many outlets for them. What do all great storytellers have in common? A desire to transmit something that they believe is true or is important 
or has been stirring inside of them um, and needs to be shared. Nobody sits down to write a story just because they have nothing else to do. You know, you can pick up a basketball and shoot hoops just because you're bored. Uh, you know, you can mow the lawn just because you want to keep busy. But nobody sits down and says, let me just think of characters and write a story because I have nothing else to do. You, you have to be passionate to be in that chair in the first place. And it has to almost be a no-choice situation that you don't have any choice, but you have to get the story out of you. You, you, you want to share it with people. You want to... You know, you want to call them all around the campfire and say, listen to a story I have to tell you. And um, if you have that in you, then you probably don't have much choice but to become a storyteller because those stories have to go somewhere. Many people will say that the greatest storyteller of all time, lived 2,000 years ago, was Jewish and a carpenter and only told stories for three years. Talk about that Jewish storyteller. <laughs> well, I didn't know him personally, so it's hard for me to speak about him. But uh, I think whether it's Jesus or the Old Testament, which preceded Jesus, uh, you'll notice that the stories that we remember, the things that we remember most about our religious texts are not necessarily the commandments or even the sentences, uh, as, as beautiful as many sentences that Jesus said were. It's the stories. It's the loaves and the fishes. It's it's the lepers. It's uh, it's uh, the you know the, the the march of the cross. It's the Old Testament. It's the it's the ark and Noah's ark being destroyed. It's it's the golden calf. It's Moses coming down from the mountaintop. You know there are three books in the Old Testament that are essentially laws. You know uh, how to behave, dietary laws. Um, you know, lifestyle laws, things like that, the, the, the last three books of the Old Testament. You never hear hardly anyone talking about those, but yet the first five or six chapters of Genesis, everybody knows. Everybody knows Adam and Eve. Everybody knows Noah. Everybody knows Abraham and sacrificing Isaac and, and uh, Jacob and uh, Joseph and the coat of many colors. And why? Because they're stories. And uh, it's the same way with the New Testament, I believe, that people remember the things that can be illustrated with stories, uh, because that's how we tend to communicate. Stories and parables, which, of course, Jesus spoke in numerous times as well. Let's go back to 1985. You're 27 years old, and you joined the Free Press. How'd, mm. that, how'd that come to be? <laughs> well, it's an interesting story with that, Jack. Um, I was... Uh, working as a sports columnist in South Florida, very young, had only had the job for two years, uh, and I had won a national award just before Mike Downey, who worked at the Free Press, decided to go to Los Angeles. Now, I wasn't here, but the story that I'm told was that Mike Downey was extremely popular with the Free Press and young and kind of you know funny and glib, and that the Detroit News, which at the time was embroiled in a very bitter Newspaper war with the free press, if you remember that. At those days, the papers were like 10 cents, 15 cents a piece, and they were going out of tooth and nail. And they had older sports columnists, Joe Falls and Jerry Green, and they wanted, they saw it as an opportunity to get in the young market. You know, uh, now Mike Downey was out of town, so they decided they wanted a young columnist. And of course, the free press needed somebody to replace Mike Downey. 
So I get a call on like a Wednesday afternoon from the free press saying, hey, we're interested. We've read some of your stuff. We're interested in you interviewing for this job. Would you like to come to Detroit? I said, okay, yeah. And about two hours later, I got a call from the Detroit News. Hey, we've been reading your stuff. Uh, we, we got an opening for a columnist. Would you be interested in coming to Detroit? So I didn't know anything about either one of the two papers. Uh, I called Mike Downey, who was a friend of mine, and said, you know, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you know, see what they both say, but I think the free press is the place for you. It's, 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 it caters to kind of the style of writing that you have, and it was good for me. So I ended up coming up, and um, I, so in order to be fair, I flew up because, you know, they paid for the plane tickets. So I flew up on the free press's uh, ticket. And I checked into what is now the Marriott Hotel, you know, in the Renaissance Center. I don't know what it was back then. I checked in, did my interview with the Free Press one day. Then the next morning, I checked out of the hotel room, then turned around and checked back in on the Detroit News' account, (laughs) did my interview with the Detroit News that day, and flew home on the Detroit News' ticket the following day. And the day after that, both of them called me within an hour and both of them offered me a job for the exact same amount of money. Now, it's been it's been 38 years, and I still haven't figured out how that happened. But I had two job offers, and I had to pick one, and I chose the free press. And, and you know, it was hard because I actually really liked the news, and I liked the people that I interviewed with. And I sort of felt, you know, maybe that was better for me. But I listened to Mike, and I thought what he said made sense. And when I called the Detroit News to tell them that I was going to take the job at the Free Press, the editor there at the time, who I had interviewed with, said, okay, we're going to bury you. (laughs) And that that was my welcome to Detroit. Um, But I'm still here, so they haven't buried me yet. (laughs) They're still digging. We're talking to Mitch Album. If you want to learn more, www.mitchalbum.com. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Grisula. We're with Mitch Album. He's written three plays, and since 1996, he's had a daily radio show here on JR. How did that come about 28 years ago, Mitch? Well, I was doing a radio show uh, over at WLLZ, uh, which was a, it isn't around anymore, but it was a rock and roll station back then. And I did the morning show with Jim Johnson and George Bayer's JJ and the Morning Crew, as they called it. And later I did a show there with uh, Ken Calvert. Uh, and, you know, I guess I had a bit of a reputation for being okay on the radio. And I got a call from um, J.P. McCarthy. And he said, why don't you come over and work with us here at WJR? And I said, well, JP, that's very nice of you. I've been on this show a few times. I said, it's very nice of you, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't want to do, you know, two hours, three hours a day of sports. It's, you know, I was doing five, six minutes. That was fine. But I always found sports radio, it's fine. You know, people like it. I, I, I get it, and, and I have no problem with it. But I couldn't do it for three hours because, you know, you get a lot of people wanting, I got to trade for you, you know, uh, we should trade this guy or this guy. You know, we should fire this guy or this guy. I just thought that, you know, I, I already spent enough of my life in sports. I didn't want to add three hours. And JP said, well, I don't think you should do sports. I think you should come over here and do what you do in your Sunday column, uh, which is general stuff. And, and I'm going to tell the people here that, 
I think you would be a great compliment in the afternoons. I could be in the mornings. You could be in the afternoon. And that's what happened. And uh, they offered me a job. And I thought, wow, this is different. This is growth. Let me take it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, JP died not long after that. And we never really got a chance to work together for any length of time. But he was kind of the guy who was responsible for uh, throwing the line in the water and pulling me in. All right. Whoever said, Mitch, I think you should write a book, was a genius. Over 25 years ago, you wrote this book, Tuesdays with Maury. It's now sold over 20 million copies, been translated into 45 languages. And you've just come up with your latest book, The Little Liar, and I quote you. This is my most important novel to date. Tell us about the book and why is it so important to you, Mitch? Well, it's an idea that I've been noodling with for uh, 10 years. And, you know, I grew up, Jack, in a neighborhood where there were a lot of Jewish people, older Jewish people, and there was this one couple who I noticed as a kid, they always wore long sleeves, even in the summertime. And I once asked my mother, how come they always wear sweaters? It's hot outside. And she said, well, they have numbers tattooed on their arms and they don't want people to see it and i said why not and she said you'll find out when you're older well i'm older now and the sad truth is those people who of course were concentration camp victims they're no longer with us there are very very few of them still alive to tell the tale of what happened and i'm a firm believer that if there aren't people alive to warn you about history you have a very good chance of repeating it And so I always felt that at one point in my life, I wanted to write a story that was set against the backdrop of the Holocaust, not about the Holocaust, but set against the backdrop that would at least continue to remind people of the horrors that people had to endure and how brave and hopeful people had to be in order to get through them so that we won't repeat it. And I had heard a story at at a museum many, many years ago told by a Holocaust survivor who said that when they got on the train tracks in the city where she was, and they were being put on these trains that were sending them to die at these concentration camps, they, the Nazis got Jewish people to lie to them on the train tracks and say to them, you're going to new jobs, you're going to homes, it's going to be fine, you know, this is all good, to, in order to lure them onto the trains. And I, I never got that image out of my head. I always thought, how terrible to use your own people against you to, you know, lead you to slaughter. And so I created a book where it's not people, but it's a little boy. And the book's set in Greece, which many people don't even realize was part of the World War II, but it was, and it was invaded by the Nazis. And, and uh, there's this little boy who's 11 years old who's never told a lie in his life. His name is Nico. And when the Nazis invade his town, they find out about him, and they decide to use him as a weapon, and they kidnap him from his family, and they trick him into standing on the train platforms and telling all these people who trust him because he never lies, everything's okay, you're going to new jobs, you're going to new homes. And it's only on the last day of the train when he sees his own family being put on the train and he runs to be with them and and one of them yells, they're taking us to die, that he realizes that he's been tricked and he's he's been lying inadvertently all this time. And the story follows what happens to him from that day for the next 40 years and how he seeks to be forgiven for what he did and how his family and a little girl who loved him as a little girl and then grows into a woman pursues him all over the world to try to find him because he goes underground and he becomes a liar 
so good at lying that nobody even knows who he is, and, and, and he becomes a recluse. And it's all about trying to get redemption uh, through love and hope and how people during that time survive the toughest, most difficult things, including being forced to lie. And, and how that's a cautionary tale for our time today. We're talking to Mitch Album about his latest book, The Little Liar. Uh, that little girl's name was Fanny. And there's four main people. Nico, Fanny, his older brother Sebastian, and Udo Graf. When we come back, we're going to ask Mitch about Sebastian, Fanny, and Udo. And I'm Jack Crisula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. This is Anything is Possible. I'm host Jack Prasula, and we're with Mitch Album. If you want to learn more, www.mitchalbum.com. Mitch, Sebastian, Fanny, and Udo Graf. Please. Well, I told you about Nico, a little boy who was forced to lie. Sebastian is his older brother who gets sent to the trains on the concentration camp. Fanny is the girl who has a crush on little Nico, and who is the crush of Sebastian. So she's sort of the little girl in the middle. And she gets thrown out of the train through a window and escapes. And Udo is the Nazi who came up with this whole idea and who kind of shadows their lives for 40 years. And the story follows what happens when Sebastian ends up in the concentration camps and vows that one day he's going to find his brother and make him pay because he believes his brother lied deliberately. Fanny follows her and how she escapes after being thrown off the train and how she survives walking around basically as a 12-year-old girl. And she vows that she's going to find Nico one day and, and prove that he was innocent and that he didn't know what he was doing. And Udo, who orchestrated the whole thing and becomes the head of Auschwitz, the concentration camp, he escapes after the war is over and finds his way to America which is actually a true thing, Jack, that a lot of Nazis ended up right here in America working for our government, uh, trying to take down the Russians. And so he ends up in America. And it just follows how their lives keep interweaving with one another and how they're constantly paying the price for Udo's scheme. Um, And it comes to a big grand conclusion, you know, uh, 40 years after the war. The Little Liar. Mitch, it's a masterpiece how you weave this together. Mitch... What does Janine feed you every morning? What kind of cereal she gives you? Where do you come up with these ideas? <laughs> well, Janine is standing nearby here, and she's laughing because the idea of Janine making me breakfast is <laughs> kind of a funny concept. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. <laughs> yeah, and that would prove it uh, because I tend to get up early and work, and, and Janine stays up late, and Janine takes great care of me and our household and our kids and everything. So... She deserves to stay in bed a little bit longer than me. Um, but, you know, the idea is, honestly, Jack, I've, I've just been blessed with that. I've never had writer's, grant, uh, writer's block. Um, I look at my life now and my age, and I realize that I will never live long enough to tell all the stories that I've jotted down in my little notebook about, I think this would be a good book. I think this would be a good book. I just don't have enough years left. So I try to get to them. I try to pick ones that have, um, you know, resonance for people. I mean, it's nice what you say about stories and characters and all that, but I've never been a writer who thought, oh, I've just got this great plot and these great characters, and I'm just going to write this story, and everybody's going to love it because I'm such a great storyteller. 
I, I see how precious everybody's time is, and I see how hard it is to get anybody's attention these days because there's so many streaming shows and movies and, and Instagram posts, and you can spend all day just going through social media. So in order to get anybody's attention or get them to sit with a book for you know days, it generally has to be something that speaks to them. And I try to write my stories, even though they're novels or fiction, I try to write them with some kind of point, some kind of lesson, something that when people are done, they say, you know what, you know, that kind of applies to me or my family or someone that I know. So Tuesdays with Maury was like that. And the five people you meet in heaven, which was about, you know, how everybody's life touches another life. That was like that. And Stranger in the Lifeboat, which is about, you know, what happens if God kind of appears in front of you and you weren't expecting it, you know, what would you do? And these are things that kind of people think about in their lives and, and affect them. And in The Little Liar, it's really a book about truth and lies and the price we pay when we lie and the forgiveness that we need to get from others and the love that we need to get from others in order to absolve us of the lies that we that we often tell. We're talking to Mitch Yalom, and we're now going to talk about the 12th Annual Radiothon, December 7th, from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., the Grand Court North, where Santa's located. Forbes family generously donates this every year for you, Mitch, at the Somerset Collection. Talk about this year's Radiothon, please. Well, last year we raised over $1.8 million in a day for all the charities of, say, Detroit and some smaller charities here in Detroit that we share the money with as well. And um, we're hoping that we can come close to that this year again. We will go from 6 in the morning till 9 o'clock. I call out all the stops on anyone I've ever met or uh, or made contact with, and they come on with us. Uh, you know, we kind of beg them, plead them. Some of them are pretty good about it. Hugh Jackman and Jane Pauley and Anderson Cooper and, and Paul Stanley from Kiss and Hank Azaria and Lyle Lovett and a lot of athletes. Matthew Stafford, even though he's out in L.A., will be with us and a number of the Lions players and Steve Eiserman and, you know, just, just, just guys from our world, from the national world, from the people I've met through my books or movies. Um, and all of it is just to raise money to help needy Detroiters, of which there are so many, so many in our community. And we have nine uh, charitable operations that we run through, say, Detroit, and we're proud of every one of them. Um, and they start with kids as young as, you know, two days old in a, in a program called Bright Beginnings all the way up to senior citizens as old as 100. And uh, every program that we've started, I'm very happy to say, uh, continues to this day. We've never had to close any of our programs. And they do a lot of good. And every dollar that we get in goes right to helping the needy. I, I pay all of the administrative costs of the charity so that no one else has to do that. And um, it's December 7th at the Somerset Collection. And we'd love to have people come out as early as 6 a.m., that would be a good time because there's nobody there, uh, all the way up till 9 o'clock at night. All right. To date, it's raised over $12 million. And as you say, 100% of the money goes to the neediest people of Detroit. You mentioned a lot of people that help you, Mitch, but you left one out, who you always save for the end, a guy named Tom Gores. Please. Well, Tom Gores uh, owns a piston, and... Somehow, a few years back, uh, he became sort of the last guest of the Radiothon. And like about two minutes to nine, he came on. He liked what we did. And he said, you know what? I think I'll give you, you know, $150,000 or something like that. And 
ever since then, we've been waiting for his call at the end of these <laughs> radiothons, and he's up the money, you know, is up uh, upwards of uh, north of $300,000 now uh, and that he does, and he always has some great ideas of what to do with it. So he has been a huge contributor, as have many, many others. I mean, I, you know, I single him out because, you know, the dollar signs are big. But, you know, Jack, the, the, the woman from Livonia, the grandmother from, you know, Grand Blank, the, uh, the little kid from, from uh, Taylor, when they call in and when they say, well, I don't have a lot, but I want to give you $10, that, that also means just as much because for them that's a big deal. And, you know, we appreciate what everybody, everybody gives us from Mr. Gores all the way across. Um, and the nice thing is everybody wants to do the same thing, which is help needy Detroiters. In 2006, we had the Super Bowl, and you spent one night in a homeless shelter. Then you wrote an article about it, the experience, and that started Say Detroit, Super All Year Detroit, which you mentioned you're helping nine charities, one of which is Mama Shoe Harris, that's just been honored by CNN as one of its 10 stars of the year. Tell us about Mama Shoe. Well, she's a community activist of the highest order in the Highland Park area. She is a dynamo. Uh, got got a lot of energy, a lot of passion, really cares about the people in her community and has started a number of initiatives right there in Highland Park where we happen to be with our Say Detroit Family Health Center, which is a, was started as the first free clinic for homeless children in America and has grown from that to take care of, of mothers and now men as well. And so we work in partnership with Mama Shu in that area. Uh, and I've seen firsthand the, from the housing to the programming to all the things that she offers. And she's one of many people in Detroit. It's just an incredible city who doesn't have to do what she does, but just basically says, I live here, this is my community, and I'm going to make it better. One other person that we've got to highlight that we, you and I think the world of, we greatly admire, Daryl Woods Sr., please. Well, Daryl... We're very blessed to have him work with us at Say Detroit. He runs a program that I came up with called Better Together. My idea was after George Floyd and all the protests that took place, we needed to amp down the uh, the volume on the screaming between police and citizens and some formerly incarcerated citizens or young people. And so I, I got the idea of if we could just get people together to talk, the temperature wouldn't be so hot, but of course it's really hard to do that because nobody wants to be the first person to break the ice. So I said, what if we just created an event over food? Because I've always done had my best conversations over food. I don't know about you, but it works the best for me. And, and uh, so we started these grilling events where we invited police officers without their uniforms and at-risk youth or formerly incarcerated people, ex-cons, et cetera, to come and grill, we create an event, just have a grilled lunch. And nobody knows why they're just being, they're just being invited to, you know, we're having a lunch. Nobody knows who anybody else is. And they grill together and they, you know, have fun and they make the, make the meats and the vegetables and they put together all the sandwiches and everything. They eat. And then after they're done eating, uh, Daryl stands up and starts introducing them. And people find that that guy's a cop sitting next to a guy who was in prison, sitting next to another cop, sitting next to a gang member. And it's incredible how the conversation goes. And Daryl leads the way because Daryl was incarcerated wrongfully when he was, I believe, 18 or 19 years old and spent 29 years in jail for a crime that he did not commit and yet came out when he was finally exonerated, and instead of being bitter and saying, I'm going to make everybody pay, 
um, he decided to try to make things better for people who were in vulnerable situations like him. And they end up being the people who attend our Better Together events. And we have now done dozens and dozens of these all over the state. And he's the ringleader of them and gets people to talk and brings people together. And it's, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. He's an inspiring man. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life, Mitch. If you want to learn more, www.saydetroit.org. When we come back, we're going to talk about havefaithhaiti.org. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Rizzula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. Anything is possible. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Mitch Album. January 12th, 2010, the earthquake in Haiti. Magnitude 7.0, estimated over 300,000 dead. You go to Haiti. What's happened, Mitch? That's a big question, Jack. Um, 2010 was almost 14 years ago. To put it in a brief form, uh, I went in uh, February of 2010 and never stopped. Um, I've been there every month ever since. I took over the operations of that orphanage that I went to visit. We now have 65 current children there. We bring in new children every year, but we also graduate the older children. We built the first, back in 2010, the first showers, the first toilets, the first kitchen, the first school that the place had ever had. And we've now moved to a new facility, which is thriving. And with our 65 current kids who are there who go to school eight hours a day, four hours in English and four hours in French, we've been able to bring them along, graduate them. We now have 12 kids in universities here in the state of Michigan, all doing well. And we have one who's in medical school uh, and it's going to be a doctor. And next year and the years to come, you know, we'll keep putting out four more and four more and four more. And we keep taking in four or six new, new ones. Haiti is the second poorest country in the world. The poverty is beyond measure. It's not American poverty. You know, it's the kind of poverty that you don't have a home at all. You live in a hole in the ground. You don't have clean water. You don't have access to food. There is no social services. There is no shelter that you can go to. There is no uh, Obamacare. There, there's nothing. I mean, it, you just you're on your own. And on top of that, it's become an extraordinarily dangerous place because of the gangs who have taken over the country. So that we have to travel, even when we land at the airport, just to get to the orphanage in armored cars with bodyguards, with, you know, a bulletproof glass and bulletproof tires, lest, you know, we get kidnapped. So 
it's it's quite different than here. And every month that I go there, I get a real heavy dose of what really matters and what doesn't. And it helps keep me in perspective. But more importantly, it, it provides opportunity for these amazing children who come from the worst kind of backgrounds. And many of them, we don't even have birth certificates for a number of them. We don't know who they are, what their name was, how old they are. They were abandoned. They were left in clinics. They were left under a tree. Uh, you know, somebody just walked out and found them. And yet they, they come from all these disparate, lost places, but they find themselves in this beautiful, loving, joyous, singing, playful environment where, you know, if you spend 24 hours there, as a number of people have, you, you'll find your whole life perspective has changed. The former Michigan football coach, Lloyd Carr, just came with us for the second time mm, last yeah. week. Mm. And, you know, he's in his mid-70s. He doesn't have to do that. But there's something about it that's life-affirming to him. And he makes the long trip down there with us, and he just loves the kids, and, and, and uh, they love him. Mm. And it's, I've, I've witnessed that happen many times. I'm still hoping to get you, Jack, to come down with us because I think you, you'd uh, be eye-opening for you. Just ask. Uh, okay, just did. Okay. Uh, it'd be an honor. Um, Lloyd Carr had a grandson that had D-I-P-G, the same thing Chica had, um, two angels. Okay, you've been there 170 times, 12, year, 12 months times 14, 170. And if we could go to May 12th, 2022, you and Janine go to Madonna University along with Emmanuel Gideon Mano. Talk about that experience, Mitch. Mano was our first kid in college, and um, he graduated. And it was the most beautiful um, sharing thing. We were able to get a feed um, that they put up from Madonna University uh, on the Internet. And we don't have very good Internet down at the orphanage, but we were able to get somebody to come in with a computer. And all the kids gathered around, and they watched when his name was called, and he walked with his cap and gown down there and i have the video of it i get chills just telling you the story jack i have the video. the kids burst burst into cheers and applause and they screamed his name here they were thousands of miles away without a, a little screen uh, and it was almost they were almost so loud he could hear them and you know I, I know every parent is proud of their kids when they graduate from anything but knowing what this kid overcame knowing watching him when he was younger sit under a single light bulb with mosquitoes all flying around, trying to do his homework on his lap without a desk. Uh, he just he had a pencil that kept popping, you know, bursting through the paper because it was on his leg. And, and, and to see him then go to college and, and almost break into tears when he saw that he got a desk in his room as a freshman, he said, do I get to keep this desk? Is this my desk? I said, yes, your desk. He said, all my life I've always wanted a desk. So to see him graduate and then go to medical school, um, uh, you know, and, and at Michigan State, it's, uh, I mean, I get teary-eyed just talking about it. And he's an inspiration and a success story for all of our kids. All right. The last page of The Little Liar. On the last page, you mentioned a little baby, Naughty. Who's Naughty? Well, it's the last page of the acknowledgments, not the book. Uh, but, yes, um, Naughty is the joy of our lives right now. Nadi was brought to us when she was six months old, and apparently she hadn't been fed anything but sugar water. So she only weighed seven pounds, and she couldn't open her eyes. She couldn't move, walk, talk, anything, and we were concerned that she would, wouldn't live. And so we were able to get a quick visa for her, and we raced her to the States. 
and put her on a heavy nutrition program under doctor's guidance, hoping that there hadn't been brain damage or, you know, serious developmental things. And since then, uh, and that was about uh, 14, 15 months ago, she has blossomed into the most charming, loving, most garrulous child I have ever seen. She's not even two years old. And she just walks around the house saying, you know, Dad, it's cold outside. Dad, I see a, I see a deer. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're at our age, you know, in our 60s, to suddenly have this child in our lives uh, who has all the sunshine of the world bursting through her. Uh, it's such a blessing. Uh, you know, every day my wife and I are just in giggles um, being amused by this beautiful child who, thank God, thank God, has not had any permanent damage from the, 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 the very, very dangerous first six months of her life. And um, eventually she'll go back to the orphanage, but I don't know. We keep projecting when that's going to be, and it keeps, it keeps getting further and further out because she's such a part of our lives. So um, she reminds me of all the good that's possible in this world every day. Last thing Mitch says in the book, truth be told, truth be told, well, thank God for Mitch and Janine album, Truth Be Told. Mitch, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Please join us next week. Until then, I'm Jack Rasula. Thanks for listening, and make it a great week, because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. Believe-